That is singer, songwriter, and 2020 National Heritage Fellow, William Bell, singing one of his many hits, Born Under a Bad Sign. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced by the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. William Bell was the first male solo act signed to the legendary Stax Records in the early 1960s. With his great sense of melody, rhythm, and lyrics, as well as one of the best voices in the business, William Bell played a pivotal role in creating a new genre of music known as Southern Soul, or the Memphis Sound. Bell is one of the great balladeers, sophisticated and soulful, with lyrics that catch the ear. And he is as successful as a songwriter as he is as a singer. His songs have been covered across genres. His first big hit, You Don't Miss Your Water, was later covered by Otis Redding and The Birds. Born Under a Bad Sign was written for Albert King, but covered by rockers, soul singers, and bluesmen. Billy Idol scored a big hit with William Bell's song, I Forgot to Be Your Lover, and so did Jaheim. After Stax Records closed in 1975, William Bell moved to Atlanta and formed his own record label. He released Trying to Love Two in 1977, which reached number one on the R&B charts and was the biggest single hit of his career. For several decades, Bell performed occasional world tours and special concert appearances, but focused on production and songwriting. Then, in 2016, he signed with the newly revived Stax Records, and released the LP, This Is Where I Live, which won a Grammy Award for Best Americana Album. And that's all I'm saying. You can hear the rest from him. I spoke with the amazing William Bell recently. Here's our conversation. William Bell, congratulations on being named a 2020 National Heritage Fellow. It is so well-deserved. It's one of your many awards, but I am thrilled that you received this one. Well, thank you so much. I feel very uh, fortunate and humbled and blessed, uh, and I'm just uh, elated to be in that category. So thank you. Now, you were born and raised in Memphis. Was music always a part of your life? Did you grow up singing? Uh, I grew up singing in church at uh, about six years, seven years old. I was singing with the church choir, and my mom sang in the choir. And, of course, when I was about uh, nine, I think I graduated to singing solo with the choir behind me. So, yes, I've been uh, singing, I would say, most of my life. Songwriting. You've been doing that most of your life, too. And as I recall, that began pretty early as well. It did. I was an only child until I was about 10 years old. And uh, I was kind of a loner, and that just writing poems and stuff like that was kind of like an outlet for me. Then when I started singing uh, in church and everything, I started putting stuff to to melodies and everything. And then, so I've been uh, pretty much uh, writing and since I was nine or ten, really. If somebody landed here from Mars 
and never heard of Stax Records, how would you describe it to them? Well, I would describe Stax as a home away from home for the neighborhood kids. Jim Stewart and Estelle Axton allowed us kids to come in and Actually, she had a record shop, so it was just kind of like a magnet for all the neighborhood kids, and she put a speaker out there on the sidewalk so we could hear all the latest songs and records that came out, and we just congregated and danced. So when they uh, built the studio in that uh, theater building, they allowed us to come in and learn a craft, hone a craft, and just make a living at it. And so uh, I would describe Stax as a surrogate home. And uh, everybody within there, even during that time, which was uh, the segregated era, but everybody within there were mixed with black and white, and um, we were like family. You know, there was so much that was unusual about Stax. I mean, as you mentioned, this was the segregated South, and at the same time, its doors were open to everyone. And the sound of the music being produced was clearly different, but also the way music was made. So I wonder if you could describe the sound that, in fact, you helped create there, what's known as the Memphis sound. How would you characterize it? Well, I would say it's part of everything we were exposed to on the radio, which was uh, gospel, blues, and back then they called it rhythm and blues. And of course, when we started at Stax, we mixed all of those ingredients, a little bit of gospel, a little bit of blues, a little bit of country and western, and we called it soul music because you was singing it from the heart. You had incredible house bands at Stax. Booker T. Jones and Booker T. and the MGs, and then Isaac Hayes later on was part of the house band and you know, so on and so on. And from what I've read, and I wonder if it's true, that there really wasn't a strict demarcation between the control room and the studio, that musicians were basically going back and forth and the sessions would run for as long as necessary. Is that true or is that <laughs> is that become a myth? A myth? <laughs> no, no, that is very true. We didn't have a time, a clock on uh, the sessions. What we did was a lot of times we'd come up with the ideas and if we had the song, uh, we would work it up in the studio. So all of the musicians, uh, Steve, Duck, Al, and Booker, were part of the rhythm section and Steve Cropper. So um, we worked it up in the studio and until we were pretty much satisfied with the arrangement of the rhythm and all of that. And we put the vocals down, and, and back then we only had like about four tracks, so you you had limited <laughs> possibilities. You had to <laughs> have to put the rhythm on, on one track and the vocals on another, and then you left the track open for the horns and whatever back of voices, another track. So then you kind of blended it together. But uh, back then it was very early on, and... Um, we just uh, did what we felt. It was not, we didn't know we were going to create something for longevity or anything like that. But uh, we just wanted to be creative and hear our songs on the radio. So <laughs> that was a part of it. And we were like family and a mixed group. Uh, of course, Booker and Al Jackson were the black portion of Booker T and the MGs. And then you had Steve and Doug Dunn 
who uh, were like the white counterparts. And but the whole organization of Stacks was mixed. And uh, like I said, inside the confines of Stacks, we were like family. You were the first male solo artist signed by Stax, and you wrote a massive hit, which you recorded, You Don't Miss Your Water. I would love for you to talk about that song, if you remember what inspired it, or what was it like being in front of that microphone singing your own song. Uh, yeah, You Don't Miss Your Water came about early on uh, at the, the actually it was Satellite Records when I cut it, and they had to change the name because of uh, there was another entity in California or something with the name Satellite, so they changed it with uh, Jim's last name, which is Stuart, S.T., and then Mrs. Axton. His sister was Axton, and so they did S-T-A-X, and there you have Stacks. But uh, You Don't Miss Your Water, I was I had a vocal group at the time, and I was singing locally in a club on the weekends uh, with a group called the Del Rios, and we did the backup work for G Whiz behind Carla Thomas. So that's how we came to the attention of Stacks Records. A couple of the guys were older, and they were drafted. They had the draft back then, and they were drafted uh, into the military. And I went solo, and uh, I was in uh, on tour with the Phineas Newborn Orchestra in uh, New York, and we had a day off and uh, a Sunday night, and it was raining. I was homesick, missing the girlfriend and all that stuff, and uh, I came up with this song, You Don't Miss Your Water. And when I came back, Chip's moment approached me about singing uh, something solo, uh, being an artist on stacks. And I had about four songs I had written while I was touring with them, the Phineas Newborn Orchestra. And I went in and, and cut uh, You Don't Miss Your Water, which was a combination of kind of country, kind of gospel, kind of blues song. In the beginning That uh, that idea turned into Southern Soul music, so <laughs> it, it sure was... did. <laughs> How old were you? I was about seventeen at the time. Oh my God! Yeah. So there you are. Your career is taking off. Bum, you're touring, and then suddenly you hear from your draft board. What happened? Of course. I had applied for college, and, and uh, then when I got the hit record, I said, well, let me, uh, instead of you know going to school, let me make some money like all college kids. Then I'll come back to school next semester. So <laughs> what I did was went on the road uh, with the Phineas Newborn Orchestra and got a chance to travel all over the U.S. of A. And, of course, 
When I didn't start the school, after graduating uh, from high school, I, I didn't start the college right away. I was drafted into the military also, and because uh, I had just turned 18. And then uh, at that particular time, if you were 18 uh, and weren't in school, you were open for draft. Well, actually, I was able to tour for about a year and a half behind You Don't Miss Your Water. And I had a big hit record, and I released a second record called Any Other Way. And then I was at the Apollo, and of course, that's when uh, the touring was You Had One-Nighters. And Mom finally caught up with me because I had a whole week at the Apollo Theater in New York. And she caught up with me at the Apollo and, of course, informed me that I had a draft notice from uh, the government. So uh, I flew home hoping I could get a deferment. And, of course, since I was about two weeks late, (laughs) I went in and they immediately put me into the military. Two years is a very long time to be away from a young, promising career in music. It was. And, of course, I spent a year and a half overseas just at the beginning of the the Vietnamese uh, uprising and all of that. And I didn't hear a lot of American music. And I had to, when I came back, thank goodness, uh, Stax had my career and contract retroactive from the time I went in, so I still had a couple of years, two and a half years left on the contract. So I had to really reorient myself into what was happening musically on stage and on the radio. And uh, of course, uh, Jim Stewart was gracious enough to let me do that. And I wrote a couple of songs with Steve Cropper and, and David and Isaac wrote a couple of things for me. Because when I came back, Otis was a big star, Rufus Thomas was a star, and of course, Carla Thomas was a big star. So when I went in, I was the number one on the totem pole, and then I have, I was at the bottom of the totem pole when I came out, so I had to really play catch up. So I uh, wrote a song called Everybody Loves a Winner, and that's the first hit record after I came out of the military. And, of course, the Otis you're talking about is Otis Renning, who was a great friend of yours. Yes. Otis and I were, I met him when I came home on furlough from basic training. He and I just kind of clicked and hit it off as friends. So when I came back and got the hit record, we did some touring together and about a year of touring and everything. And so uh, we hung together and uh, when we weren't touring and then just... uh, when we were touring, it was just a, a joy. It was like competition between us and uh, friendly competition. But uh, we became good friends. And, of course, uh, you know, the rest of it after his death and everything, I wrote Tribute to a King as a tribute to him. I was going to ask you, because you can sing everything, but you really just love ballads. And, boy, can you sing a ballad. You know, you love them as a singer and as a writer. And I'm wondering if your background in church music somehow relates to that. It does. Uh, Singing gospel is a a great foundation for melodic structure and lyrical content and being able to deliver the emotional range of a story. So that's where my foundation was. And so when I write personally for myself or for any other artist, 
that's the way I approach it. I just want to write about life and write the realistic point of view and maybe how I would relate to it if I were in a certain situation, if I've got an idea, a hypothetical idea for a song. So they say that soul singers never sing the same song the same identical way at any given performance. And that's pretty much true because you're creating as you deliver the, the idea and the, and the song. And uh, however you're feeling at that particular given time, that's how you uh, relate to it. Well, your voice is just extraordinary. Uh, somebody said he could sing about kicking puppies and you would still love him. That voice is so smooth. <laughs> well, thank you, and thank who said that. I, I do appreciate that. I wish it had been me, but it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that is uh, something that you uh, learn in, in gospel. And also, when I became uh, a vocalist with the... Phineas Newborn Orchestra because he had, I was able to sing jazz and standard stuff, and uh, he had a big band, kind of like a Count Basie band. So I was surrounded by just fantastic musicians, and it was like going to university. They were hard on me, but because they loved me and they wanted me to to be the best at what I could be, and. Uh, so I would sit after rehearsals sometime, and they would sit me down at the piano and learn how to sing changes and and different phrases on songs and all of that. So I was like going to university at the same time. I would like to talk about a couple of the many, many, many songs you wrote and recorded. Just too many hits to talk about. You and Booker T had known each other and worked pretty closely together, and... One song that you wrote with Booker T was Born Under a Bad Sign, which has been recorded by 80 million people. But I think Albert King was the first to record it. What do you remember about that one? Well, I was one of these artists uh, that if I were not on tour, I was in the studio because I wanted to learn all of the aspects of recording, how to mic drums, what that button is for, and Sometimes when Jerry Wexler or Tom Dowd would come in, I would pick their brains, and they were <laughs> gracious enough to tell me the inner workings of the recording process. So I was in the studio when Albert was recording, and he didn't have enough material, so Jim asked me if I had a song that Albert could do. And, of course, I had this one song that I was going to start for myself, and uh, I had a verse, a bass line, and a chorus, and that's all I had. So one verse, a bass line, and a chorus. So I sang it for Albert, and he just loved the idea. And so Booker and I went overnight to his home and wrote the song, stayed up all night, wrote it, came back the next morning, cut the track, and put Albert on it. That's how Born Under a Bad Time came, came about. Hard luck and trouble
another early Stack song of yours, gorgeous song, sung beautifully by you, and also covered by many, 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 many people. I Forgot to Be Your Lover. Uh, yes, I Forgot to Be Your Lover was a song that when I really started touring, some of those tours back then in the early days would last for six or seven months. <laughs> and I went on the road, and of course I had a girlfriend, and uh, went on the road and left uh, her for that long, and we would talk every other day. Of course, you get homesick, and that's how the idea for I Forgot to Be Your Lover came about. I wrote that because of that, and when I came in to record, I was still writing, and they had uh, those little two-track machines then, and I had one of those on the road with me, and so I put all my ideas down. That was one of the songs that I did, but it's it's been covered by a lot of people, and it's always been successful with the people that cut it. So I guess a lot of different genres of music from Billy Idol, Jaheem, to you name it, have cut it, and, and they all had hits on it, which uh, I'm elated over. Have I told you? that I love you If I didn't, darling, I'm sorry Did I reach out and hold In my love and all It was one of those songs that anybody that tour a lot or that's in this business, they can relate to, and people that you leave behind can relate to it. Things, unfortunately, did not go well for Stax financially, and it ended up having to close. And you ended up moving to Atlanta. Why leave Memphis and why go to Atlanta? So after um, Stax closed... My management was in Atlanta, so I moved to Atlanta, and I was able to tour and everything, but it was just devastating for us kids because as neighborhood kids that came out of Memphis, we never thought that Stax would would end. So when it did, uh, we were kind of in limbo for a while, so I actually had thought seriously about getting out of the music business. (laughs) So what I did was my manager and I started a company here in Atlanta. I had a production company, so we started a record label. So that's what I did for like three years. And at the time, Charles Fash out of Mercury was constantly at uh, at me about doing something for Mercury Records. And I didn't, you know, I was I was comfortable writing and producing for my own label and everything. But finally, he prevailed and. I agreed to do four sides for Mercury. And so I did uh, the song Trying to Love Two. And of course, that turned out to be a million seller for Mercury on my first release with them. And which, uh, (laughs) as you might say, it pulled me back into uh, the music business. About me. I'm caught in the middle of a three-way love affair. 
How did you find out it sold a million copies? Uh, I was on a flight to uh, California, and I don't know how um, <laughs> how they did it, but I was on this flight, and the stewardess asked me to stand up. And at the time, I'm wondering, what did I do now? You know, it's like, <laughs> so. Uh, I stood up in the middle of the aisle, and they announced to the uh, people on the plane that uh, I had just sold a million copies of this song, Trying to Love Too, and of course I got all the applause. Kind of embarrassed me in a sense, but uh, that's how I found out. (laughs) Well, you started your own label, Will Be Records. Which is still, which you still have, and you you record yourself, and you record other people, and you toured for for some time. I'm just curious about having your own label, and of course that gives you a lot of freedom, but I would imagine it also gives you a lot of business headaches. Well, it does, but I was uh, accustomed to that. I was always wanting to to know the inner workings of the music business, even before it was fashionable. I started the peace tree thing, and um, of course, when my manager passed and I got another hit record (laughs) with Mercury, I kind of just let the peace tree record go for a second. And so when I started the uh, Wilby label, of course, I was like (laughs) an old hat at at, at doing that. And uh, (laughs) of course, I had a good... uh, partner in this with uh, Reginald Jones, which is another Jones boy. <laughs> so, <laughs> and he kind of remind me of uh, Booker because he played, he's one of those uh, musicians that you just hate. You know, he plays about seven or eight instruments fluently. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, in, no, I just say that lovingly, but uh, he and I worked closely together and we signed up three or four acts that we were successful with. And of course, we've still got the label going, and, and and I've got some good people working for me. We do everything in-house from creating the uh, artwork to taking the photos, doing the videos. We do it all here at, at the complex here. <laughs> well, there you are. You're doing all this, and then suddenly Stax is relaunched, and they came looking for you. What made you decide you would do another record with them? Well, I started working with them. I I was always doing stuff for the Stax Academy when we put that back into operation. And uh, I was taking the kids on the road with me to do some things. We did uh, the Smithsonian Festival, and we did another festival in Orlando there for... AARP and just a lot of things I took on took them on the road with me. Those were kids from the academy that we were working with, and of course I still was uh, in contact with people at Stacks. And uh, the thing that made me want to do this because it had been like forty years since I had done anything with Stacks, <laughs> and so when they yeah. came, I had not. Rec- I had been so busy recording other acts for the and 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 everything and running the label, running the publishing for Wilby, so I hadn't re- cut anything myself in about seven or eight years. So when they approached me about doing something, they wanted to resurrect the sax label again. So I'm saying, okay, it, it just made sense. I was the first solo act that signed with the original Stacks. And now here they 
came to me again and said, uh, would you sign? A, uh, and so I, I took a hiatus from uh, my label, the Wilby label, and signed with them for a year and um, did a project with John Leventhal, which was a big fan of mine, and I was a big fan of his and everything. So we took our time and uh, just created. Uh, we didn't want to reinvent the wheel and try to, uh, try to uh, dwell on uh, creating a new Stacks, but we wanted some of that ingredient that Stacks had, which was good songs, good melodical content and good uh, production. We wanted to broaden it a little bit so that, because now it's world music, so we wanted to broaden it so it's a little bit more than just Southern soul or soul music. So we just really took our time to write the kind of songs and material that would be a little broader appeal throughout the world. And we came up with This Is uh, Where I Lived. I was born in Memphis in a different world. Now that time has come and gone. I was just a little boy when I heard Sam Cooke singing, a change is gonna come. Let me know there's a promise of a brand new day. Then I left my home, started out on my own. This is where I live. This is where I live. This is where I give. To make a long story short, we were fortunate enough to win the uh, Americana uh, album of the year uh, with a Grammy. That's right. Your first Grammy, which I find in- impossible to believe, but yes. Yeah, um, and, and you know, it, it was funny that it was back on stacks again, so I'm saying, yeah, okay, great, so <laughs> it kicked that, that label back <laughs> off, and um, so I was just elated over that. You know, the sound you, you two arrived at was just wonderful because it certainly was a nod to Stax, but it wasn't a replication. It wasn't something embedded in nostalgia. It was so current. Well, that's what we were trying to do. We were trying to be current enough but still retain that essence of good song, good melodic structure, and good lyrical content. So that's, and then, and then the arrangement, like I said, John was a, a student, as he told me later on, he had listened to everything <laughs> that I had recorded, and he was a big fan of mine, he was a big fan of Stax, and he did the kind of arrangements with the horns and all of that stuff, and made sure that the storyline and the vocals and everything were exposed enough to to, uh, to get that kind of record. The film Take Me to the River is a documentary about the music in Memphis, with a big focus on stacks, of course. Tell me what made you sign on to it and what you wanted to accomplish by doing it. Well, Take Me to the River was a process. The uh, producer, Martin Shaw, wanted to use me on something and my thinking at the time was okay we've been approached a lot of times by stuff that just didn't have it right not quite right but I was open enough to talk with Martin and when I talked with him 
he was just passionate about wanting to do it right and wanting to get it right. That's why he wanted to get me involved in all of this. And um, he had talked to Snoop Dogg, and Snoop Dogg was a fan, and he wanted to do it with me. So I had went, flew to Memphis, had a meeting, to make a long story short, had a meeting with Martin, agreed to sign on with it after talking with him and saw how dedicated he was in telling the story of Stax and telling of the new ideas. So my next question to him was, can we use the Stax kids? <laughs> so he said, absolutely. And he then got the idea, why don't we do this? Why don't we just cross genres? Since Snoop wants to work with you, then why don't we just cross genres between hip-hop, rap, and blues and, and soul? Uh, that's how we started out doing that. And everybody had such a, a wonderful attitude. There were no egos, no none of that among the artists and everything that came in to participate. It was just a, a labor of love. And we we learned so much in doing that. We we learned that it was the same, actually the same story. The hip hoppers and rappers are telling it from their generation. We told it from our generation in the 60s. And before that, in the 50s and 40s, people like B.B. King and Bobby Bland and all those people told it from their era. So it was the same story perpetuated through the years. And uh, we learned so much from each other. Tell me who the Stax kids are. The Stax kids are the kids that uh, attend the Stax Academy. Once we resurrected the Stax Museum, we also built an academy where the kids can go like we did in the studio. They can go to the academy, just neighborhood kids and everything, and learn the process of doing music. And you've got so many talented kids, and they learn every aspect of it, from songwriting to performing to dance to engineering and both sides of the spectrum of, of music. So that's who they are, and I, I've used the, the band and dancers on the road with me and even uh, in Europe on, on some dates. And they're just wonderful kids that are so talented and I look at them almost like a, a proud grandfather because they remind me of me when I was coming along at 12 and 14. So we use them in Take Me to the River. You can hear some of them uh, in Take Me to the River, That the, some of the horns and some of the rhythm players and everything, the little drummer and, and guitarist and everything. And uh, they learned so much from it, and we were so happy to, that uh, they were included in this. And then we took them on the road uh, when we started touring on some of the performances. It is just a, a wonderful thing that uh, to be able to pass that torch on to the, the youngsters and the kids and, and let them uh, realize their dream. And finally, in closing, what are you looking forward to right now? <laughs> more more longevity. <laughs> no, I, I really do. I, I just had a birthday, and I'm real, really fortunate to be around uh, this long and being a viable entity in the business. I've got all my health and strength, and I'm still working with kids and teaching them. I've, um, I've got my own publishing and production company and business. So I'm, I'm having a good time 
in my old age doing what I love doing, and I've been doing it my whole life. So right now we're just hunkered down trying to be creative and create uh, different ways of being a viable entity in the music business. And aren't we lucky that that's what you're doing? William Bell, thank you. I have so much to thank you for, your time certainly, but the music and the happiness you have given me throughout the years, I am so grateful to you. Well, thank you so much, and, you know, we need people like you. There are a lot of people that go into making an artist who they are, and uh, they don't get to shine in the spotlight enough, but you've got a lot of the stations and the, the different managers and all these people that work behind the scenes, the writers, producers, and and the fans, of course, and people like you, the media. We are elevated because of you, and we don't forget that. We don't take it lightly. Well, thank you. And many congratulations again on the 2020 National Heritage Fellowship. Thank you. Thank you so much. And again, uh, hopefully we will uh, be able to meet maybe hopefully in uh, 21 or at least by 22. I hope so. I really do. And please (laughs) take care until then. Thank you. All right. And be safe. You too. That singer, songwriter, and 2020 National Heritage Fellow, William Bell. Many thanks to Larry Eaglin and to Reginald Jones. Because of the pandemic, the annual celebration of the new class of National Heritage Fellows will take place virtually this year. Details will be available shortly at arts.gov. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Don't forget to subscribe to Artworks and then leave us a rating on Apple because it helps people to find us. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Stay safe and thanks for listening. Hey,